Rural hospitals were largely spared from the early surges of the COVID-19 pandemic in America, with urban areas suffering the largest and most serious outbreaks in the spring. As fall and winter have come on, the cases in rural areas have increased significantly, as have the hospitalization rates in those communities. So, how do rural hospitals with smaller teams and fewer beds navigate a global pandemic? With well-developed emergency response plans, quick action, and teams who are ready to step up to the challenge. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 5 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and CEO of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So today we're talking about COVID-19 and rural hospitals. Um, what, what are we seeing in our hospitals and uh, globally? How are these challenges bringing American healthcare to its knees as hospitals and communities as we fight to take care of sick patients? Exactly. And today we're joined by one of my favorite people who has been dealing with this since the beginning, both on the front lines and in the operational leadership side of crisis management. Our guest today is Lauren Corbin, Chief Nursing Officer for Hillsdale Hospital. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Lauren. Thank you, JJ and Rachel as well. I appreciate being on the program today. It's been a very interesting to listen to the podcasts, and I'm very pleased to be here. Well, Lauren, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I've been in nursing for about 15 years now. It's my second career, um, with my first one being teaching. And I've really enjoyed nursing thus far. Um, Most of my background in nursing is in surgery. Um, I did come through up through surgery and have been both a surgical nurse and a surgical leader, Um, have enjoyed that a lot. Moved to Hillsdale almost two years ago. Can you believe it's been two years? And um, came to Hillsdale Hospital as, again, a surgical manager. And then I became the chief nursing officer. So really enjoying it here at Hillsdale Hospital. So Lauren, what is a chief nursing officer? So a chief nursing officer is the person that is over all of the nursing program. So I have managers under me that manage each of the departments, and then the nurses, the frontline nurses are under those people. Well, I would have to submit to uh, our audience today that uh, you do a great job as Hillsdale Hospital's uh, chief nursing officer, and we're really just pleased to have you on the show today and look forward to our conversation. Thank you very much. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, uh, let's start with the why. Uh, We do this on every episode so we can get to know our guests just a little bit more. So Lauren, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, JJ, my big why is I love taking care of our community members. I have friends in this community. I have family as well. And taking care of them and knowing that their health care needs are taken care of is a top priority. Now, I don't normally, on a regular basis, do frontline nursing. I don't work on the floor, but I'd like to take care of the people who take care of you. So that's that's really my why, is to make sure that my managers have what they need, to make sure my nurses have what they need to do their jobs, and to take care of their patients. Lauren, that's a great why. So let's get started talking about COVID-19. I'm surprised it's taken us five episodes to really get into this as a primary topic. Um, But let's start from the beginning, Lauren. When COVID-19 came onto our radar in probably January or February, not in our community, but we were starting to hear about it in the news, the first cases in the U.S. had been identified. 
in uh, what I like to call the before times back in January or February. What do you remember hearing, learning, and expecting about this virus when we really hadn't experienced it yet? That's a very good question, Rachel. So I do remember hearing about this vague virus that they were seeing in China. And, you know, it didn't really hit home quite quite as much. And then it started migrating and coming over to the United States. And I remember thinking this is going to be another Ebola. I remember thinking we're going to do all this training. And we're going to get the nurses ready and we're going to have all these plans in place. And then we're going to see it go through maybe New York City or maybe even Detroit. But it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily affect us. I do remember having those exact um, thoughts. As you well know, Lauren, we ended up having our first COVID-19 task force meeting on March 13th, which feels like 100 years ago now. But from the initial meeting moving forward, what kind of work have you been charged with and have been doing in response to COVID-19? And maybe just for our audience, give a behind the scenes of what hospitals had to do at the beginning when all of this was very, very new. So we started with making a plan because everyone needs a good plan. And so we started making a plan of what we would do um, should we get this COVID virus in our community. We obviously had to make sure we had all the supplies necessary. We had to make sure we had the staff necessary. And we had to make sure that those staff were trained. So I do remember multiple, multiple meetings. I remember late night meetings. I remember um, the managers coming together and just deciding how we needed to start, how we needed to get going. Our first big thing was um, supplies. Did we have enough supplies? So I do remember that our emergency preparedness director had multiple, multiple meetings with the state, and he would go up and he would get supplies and he would make sure that, that we had the supplies we need. And he would get supplies from our strategic national stockpile through our state district meetings. Then I also remember how we set up screening. We ended up having to screen everyone that came into the hospital. So the first thing that we did is we set up this big yellow tent. You remember the yellow tent, JJ? Oh, do I ever remember the yellow tent? <laughs> it was our it was a big tent that sat right in front of the front door of the building and everyone who came into the hospital had to go through that tent and everyone had to be screened. So we took their temperature we asked them, had they been exposed to any COVID and did they have any COVID symptoms? So, and then everyone got a sticker and that just putting that together was huge. Um, Rachel, do you remember that we had to, we had to hire so many screeners? We did. And eventually we moved the screening station and we've adjusted how we've screened multiple times throughout the process too. So we started with one way, then there was another way. And we've had to keep our staff who are doing that screening caught up with the process through out. Exactly. And there, it seems like there were memos going out almost weekly about how we were changing that as, as the rules of the state changed. We also did a lot of changing with visitors. So we had to change our visitor policies. So according to how much COVID we were seeing in the county, that's how, how much we had to change our visitor policy and how we had to limit our visitors or even completely stop visitors in the hospital. And that brought about a whole new preparation because then we have patients in the hospital who can't see their family members. They can't visit them. Um, so we brought we brought in some extra equipment so maybe we can FaceTime with them. We can make sure that they get there. They get they get to talk to their family and they get to see their family. And I do remember one thing that we did that was especially neat. Um, Rachel, I don't know if you've ever walked on the other side of the building where the, the OB department is and where the OB windows are, but they put um, 
They put the room numbers in the OB windows so that family members could come up to the windows and talk, talk, I say with with quotes, um, to the moms who had just had their babies and they could talk through the window. So that was a really neat thing. So we've done a lot of preparation for that. You know, Lauren, we had to figure out new ways of delivering health care, didn't we? We did indeed. And it's been very difficult and you and your team have done a wonderful job at ensuring that. But, you know, who would have thought that we'd have to restrict visitors? But I can I can tell you that uh, after all the screening processes and uh, limiting the number of visitors, this is probably healthcare today is the safest place anyone could be uh, right now in America. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree greatly with that, JJ. In fact, you had to put out a lot of, of advertisement, a lot of communication to the community because we have community members that don't want to come to the hospital because they think it's not safe. So you did a lot of work on that. You know, I I can recall the late nights that Rachel and I would be texting back and forth. And uh, Rachel has been a tremendous resource to us and uh, has certainly uh, spearheaded our communication up. And Rachel, maybe just for our audience today, explain some of that process, because not only did we have to implement this, but we had to communicate it to our community and our service area. So how did we do it? Yeah, you know, on our first episode, I talked about one of the things I love about my job is that I get to share and brag about all the great things that our amazing team is doing. And, um, you know, this was no different in terms of process, but but the tone was a little more difficult because it is not easy for family members to hear that they can't come see their loved one while they're in the hospital. It's not easy for a grandparent to hear you can't be there when your grandchild is born. You know, these are huge moments in people's lives. And we unfortunately had to make the best of a bad situation. And so sharing that with the community is not an easy thing to do. But from the beginning of COVID, what we kind of unintentionally ended up creating was this regular communication directly with our community through Facebook Live, in fact, which it's funny because before COVID, Facebook Live in the marketing world was kind of known as something that was phasing out and it wasn't the new or the next thing. And for us, it's been an absolutely critical tool to communicate with everyone in our county. And even sometimes we have people outside of our county that watch our Facebook Live programs because in March, I think the first one we did was mid-March. So it was like maybe a day or to before we had our first COVID patient in the hospital and our first confirmed case in Hillsdale County. And we really just thought, you know what, let's do a Q&A with the community. We'll get our infection control officer on. We'll get a representative from the health department. And we'll just have a conversation about what is your local community doing to manage COVID-19 and what things are true and not true. Um, It's hard for people to parse out the correct and the incorrect on social media because so much is out there. So that initial Q&A morphed into, at one point we were doing two or three Facebook Live broadcasts a week, and now we do one every week, um, at least once a week, unless there's a holiday or something like that. And we go through and we help debunk the myths and the fake news versus the facts that you can use and help people to understand what what is it that they can do? But also we've been able to use that opportunity to consistently communicate the changes as they're happening at the hospital. And it's very back and forth. We have people on there who ask questions every single week and we're able to answer those directly. And when we do that, it's usually myself and then some of our experts. So JJ will be on with us almost all the time. Um, We'll have, you know, today we had a physician um, who's our ER medical director and also our ER clinical manager 
and they were able to answer questions with their expertise. And it really has created a better sense of, I think, just a little more calm in the community when people know that they can access and are going to be told what's actually happening in their community. We also were one of the first hospitals to put out a press release that said, because of COVID, we are having to go through a period of layoffs. And that's not an easy thing to put out there, but that doesn't mean that we can't still take care of you. And that's been one of the unintended consequences sometimes of that transparency is that we see our volume shrink and people start delaying their health care. You know, Rachel, speaking of unintended consequences, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I reflect on in this COVID fight is some of the decisions that were made without our consent. Our governor decided single handedly to uh, send out an executive order and that executive order eliminated uh, elective surgeries from all Michigan hospitals. And I will tell you, speaking of unintended consequences, that had a dramatic impact on two, two ways. Number one, patients did not get the care that they needed. They put it off. And we saw patients who in our clinics were much, much sicker than they needed to be. And those individuals who had serious life-threatening uh, issues as a result of holding off on their health care. The second was just the business model for, for hospitals in general, not just rural hospitals, but hospitals across Michigan uh, and those electives which were eliminated with no scientific data behind it. There was, you know, we prevented the transmission of COVID all the way up until October of 2020. So for months, you know, six months, we had prevented the transmission of this. And so what we knew and the reason we fought so hard was because we wanted to give access to our patients to get the care that they need. And second of all, we needed the business model to support the operations to take care of the patients that we're going to see. And for Hillsdale Hospital, we had no idea that there would be a CARES Act or that there'd be additional funding. We fought hard to make sure that we could have those electives return. And we did raise an awareness in this community across the state and even the nation uh, as we were appearing on, on programs to talk about the unintended consequences as well as the financial devastation to already struggling hospitals. And for us, Rachel, you know it's $10 million in financial losses because of this. And uh, any shutdown of elective surgeries uh, prevents the patients from getting the care that they need and the hospitals from sustaining themselves into the future. Now, my hope is in the future uh, that uh, the governor of this state and states throughout the United States realize that that's not the, the, the best thing to do. Uh, if you want to take care of patients, you have to give them access to health care during a pandemic. Unfortunately, so far in this latest surge, which is worse than what it was in the spring, I think that folks have learned from the methods we did in the beginning and what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, states all around us had those same bans on elective procedures. Some of them lifted them much earlier um, than what we saw here in Michigan. But we haven't seen that happening at a state level recently, which I think is a good thing. Hospitals are being allowed to make that decision on their own. And some have had to do that because they need to pull those surgical nurses to care for their COVID patients or their other patients who don't have COVID, but that they don't have the nursing staff for. Um, so fortunately, we haven't seen that recur in this second uh, wave of COVID or third wave by now, whatever we're calling it. Um, but it is something that that we had to be very proactive on and really fits in with our passion for creating that awareness for rural hospitals and what we face. So in the beginning, we really weren't seeing a lot as we moved through the summer 
There were maybe a handful of cases coming up every week in our community, and many other areas of the country had some lighter months through the summer. Some areas had a kind of a secondary peak after the initial peak. And at one point, we actually started to think maybe we had passed the worst of it. And of course, that's wishful thinking and hopeful thinking. Um, But things have changed pretty dramatically in the past two months. So as our COVID cases in this community have increased, along with our patient volumes as a result, how have things changed for our frontline staff who are taking care of those patients directly very different now than what they were experiencing in the spring? It is definitely very different, Rachel. In the spring, we saw a very small spattering of patients. I think we had about a dozen maybe in the spring. And then all of a sudden, it started hitting again in the past couple of months, and especially in the past couple of weeks. Um, we definitely are seeing much, many more patients, a much higher volume of COVID patients. Um, a couple of things that we've seen that's that's been different is it used to be oh my goodness, we have a COVID patient. And now it is normal. We have COVID patients all the time now um, with these these couple of weeks that we've been experiencing. That's helped the, the nursing staff realize that it's okay. They can take care of these patients and they will be all right taking care of them. Um, I hate to say it's become the norm, but it pretty much has. Um, we, are, we are working hard. We are taking care of the COVID patients and we realize that we can do it. So with that, Lauren, we have most recently seen an even more dramatic uptick in the number of cases, fully activating our emergency response plan. And, you know, staffing has been one of our biggest challenges, not only ours, uh, but across the United States, we hear of that. So what has made this so difficult uh, and how has Hillsdale Hospital managed our staffing concerns? So in a smaller rural hospital, we have very limited staff. We run on a very lean model, and we make sure that we have enough staff to cover what we need, but we don't have a lot of extra staff sitting around. In larger hospitals, they have float pools, and there there are people who just show up at the hospital that day, and then their manager gets to decide where they are going um, for the day. We don't have a float pool. That has made it a little bit more difficult. But what we've done is we've made sure that we have the staffing and we've made sure that we have wonderful staff who will pick up extra for us and who will work maybe more hours than they're used to working. So, Lauren, have you worked the floor and carried the board and done things that you probably never thought you'd be doing? I definitely have. I definitely have worked the floor. And I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was a surgical nurse, so I've never really done a lot of med surge nursing. And I have done more med surge nursing in the past two weeks than I have in my life, which is great. It's been a really good thing. It's been an eye-opener, and I really want to be out there for the nurses and the managers that need it. Well, that's great, Lauren. And so, you know, a follow-up question to that would be, we have heard throughout uh, communities across the United States about capacity and hospitals are at capacity. Um, what does that mean for a facility like Hillsdale? When do we determine at capacity? And, and, and what, what, what are the challenges for us to declaring at capacity? So at capacity can mean different things on different days. So we have X number of beds, and those are, we, those are physical beds, and we can put a patient in a bed, and we can count all those people. But we also have to realize that there are these things called acuity levels, and a sicker patient re- needs more attention, needs more time. Um, each of the nurses 
has an X number of patients, and each of them has to give time to those patients. Now, in these past two weeks, what we have found out is that COVID patients take a lot more time than a regular patient. So we have to be careful when we talk about capacity. It's not necessarily how many bodies we can get in the rooms. It's how many bodies, how many patients we can take care of. Excellent. So capacity really is more of a fluid concept than how we tend to think of it and how it tends to be reported, because obviously with data tracking that's happening that most state health departments are doing, and then that's often filtering up to the national levels, we're looking at and trying to calculate hospitalization rates. Um, And then with that, people then want to know, okay, how if the hospitalization rate's getting higher, when are we going to run out of beds or the ability to take care of patients? And it really has so much more to do with the staff we have than it does with the space. Because we know we've had a plan before. If we had to, we could fit 100 beds in our facility, but we couldn't staff them. So that doesn't help our patients if we can't take care of them. So along the same lines of this conversation, we know that nursing is a physically demanding job. Um, It can be emotionally demanding as well when you're caring for sick patients, and sometimes they don't have great outcomes, and that's difficult. But with this being a unique situation, being a pandemic, our nurses are working more. What makes this environment so much more challenging for frontline healthcare staff than the other high stakes scenarios that they have worked in before? Because that's not high stakes work is not new to healthcare workers, but this is more than just having a few more patients than we're used to, right? That is exactly true, Rachel. It is having more patients, and those patients are much more sick than we used to see patients be. So just the physicality part of it. So everybody hears in the news today about PPE. So that's personal protective equipment. And a COVID patient requires a lot of PPE to be worn for the nurse to be taking care of them so that our nurses do not get COVID and can come to work and take care of these patients. So just to let you know, To go into a patient room one time, the nurse has to put on a gown. So it's a plastic gown that covers their clothes that they have on. They have to put on hair covering and shoe covering. They also have to put on a regular mask, and then they have to put on a shield so that protects them and protects their eyes as well as their mouth and nose. And then they have to put on gloves. So that is just to walk in to give one patient one thing. So, of course, the nurses have gotten very good at combining their tasks. So they do several things while they're in the room since they're already gowned and gloved. Um, And so that makes it harder the physical part of it. The emotional part is also very hard. They see these people, they are very, very sick. Um, Some of them may not make it and they know that and they are very, it is very taxing on the emotional spirit of my nurses. And what about the concern for them as well? Because we've seen across the country, unfortunately, there are healthcare workers who have also been victims to this, to this virus and who have passed away as a result. And I would imagine that that concern as well as taking COVID home to their family would be kind of compounding those emotional issues of the patients in front of them, but also how it's maybe affecting their life and their family. It is indeed. It is definitely affecting them. 
um, we don't understand what it's like to go to work and say, I wonder if I'm going to get sick today, you know, or I wonder if I'm going to take this home to my family. So that is definitely a great concern. And, you know, the nurses that have to make sure that they strip in the garage and throw their clothes in the in the washer before they get in the shower, before they can hug their kid. So definitely a, a something to be considered. You know, Lauren, you brought up PPE uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, so we're in rural America. You know, we have a small rural hospital. And for the listener out there who has early on probably heard of the challenges related to acquiring PPE, um, have we moved beyond that stage? Are we at a good position right now in in our community to take care of our patients with the supplies that we need? Yes, JJ. In fact, we are. We have a wonderful purchasing manager. And from the very beginning of the COVID outbreak, he jumped right on top of things. He made sure that we have the PPE that we need. We have not been without PPE at all. Now, is it challenging to get it? Yes. Scott finds that he can't get it someplace, but he doesn't give up. He goes to another place. He gets us the PPE that we need. We had a goal of getting 90 days worth of PPE in-house, and we met that goal. And we haven't we haven't had any issues thus far at this hospital. We're taking good care of it. And we've certainly heard some horror stories from a surgical mask ranging from six cents pre-COVID that we could purchase to a dollar twenty-five uh, per single mask. And so we've heard of these challenges, and they're real to to rural health because you know we operate on a shoestring budget. So those can be absolute game changers with our budget. But I would say, and I would submit to our audience that's listening, that uh, Hillsdale Hospital has done a wonderful job. And small rural hospitals throughout America are managing this on a day-to-day basis. And having that supply chain is so critical to protecting our frontline staff. So, you know, in healthcare, we always have to prepare for the worst-case scenarios, right? Uh, from caring for a patient who might be coding uh, up on the floor to managing our organization during a regular crisis. Um, how has the advanced preparation we've done prepared us to stand up for a trial like this to test our already challenged circumstances in rural health care. So, JJ, we started early, if you remember. Um, We did some training for the nurses early on. We knew that when we got some of these patients, they would be critical patients. So we did some really good critical care nurse training. We trained them on some critical drips. So those are medications that go in via IV. Um, We also trained them on vent care. So if a patient is on a ventilator, they know how to take care of them. We also did some PPE refresher training. Um, It's not every day that you have to put on that whole list of things that I just talked about. Because there's definitely a certain order you have to put on your PPE. There's a certain order you have to take it off with. And there's some very careful steps you have to take to make sure you don't infect yourself as you're taking off your, your contaminated PPE. We also looked at scheduling. And we made sure that we had enough nurses to cover those, those needed shifts. And when we, when we need extra nurses, we can get them in here. So that's a perfect segue into our last question, because it really is times like these, and we've all experienced periods of challenge in our life. Um, And it's times like these when we discover what we're made of. We have to push ourselves. We grow a lot in a very short period of time. So with that, Lauren, what would you say are some of the lessons that we have learned or some of the growth opportunities we've had that will make us better on the other side of COVID when we get there? That's a wonderful question, Rachel. Um, I see this COVID problem that we're having. It has stretched us. It has made us understand and realize that we have to work together, that we have to be a team. And we've always been a wonderful team, but 
we are seeing more people come up with new ideas, more people working together. We see more people doing things that are outside of their comfort zone, if you will. Um, the We've got nurses who are doing different nursing jobs. We have managers who are working on the floor alongside their nurses. We have all kinds of people who are doing different things. Just this morning, um, I saw a respiratory therapist. It was Ryan. And Ryan was in COVID rooms and he had all his garb on. And he realized when he when he opened the door to get something that the lunch trays were sitting there. Well, respiratory therapists don't deliver lunch, lunch trays, but this guy did because he knew it had to be done. We all are pitching in trying to do what was what's best for the patient. And since he was already in all of his PPE, all he had to do is take the lunch tray and he could deliver the lunch trays to the people that were behind the doors of the COVID rooms. So it's been a really wonderful lesson in teamwork, a good lesson in building new ideas and getting outside of that comfort zone and knowing that you can do more and that there is always something you can learn, something new that you can do. Thanks so much for taking the opportunity to be with us today. And it's great to hear your perspective as a chief nursing officer, but also uh, as, an, as a leader who's on the front line uh, taking care of our staff uh, and the staff then take care of our patients and then as well as taking care, a uh, great care of our patients. So thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a very nice opportunity to have. And now for our favorite part of the show, the voice of the patient. Today, we have a story from Nina, who works in our pharmacy at Hillsdale Hospital. Her granddaughter ended up being born here in our birthing center after an unexpected turn of events. This is Nina's story. They had told her that it was going to be a complicated birth. She had it all planned out that she was here to go to Battle Creek and have this baby. And then all of a sudden, um, we received a phone call. And it was my son, Jake telling us that Andy's water had broke and that she had to go to the nearest hospital so she was on her way to Hillsdale Hospital. When I went into the room to see our new granddaughter, uh, Andrea's first words to me were, if I would have known that this is how I was going to be treated, I would have come here first. I wouldn't have even tried to go see the other doctor if I would have known this was the kind of care I was going to receive. I would have just come here first to Hillsdale Hospital. You know, Nina is one of my other favorite people in addition to Lauren. And when she shared this story with me, you could just see on her face how much it meant for her to have our team, her colleagues, take such great care of her family. And this is also a great example of how bigger isn't always better in healthcare. Quite frequently, it's not. And uh, when you hear stories like this, it really gives you a lot more confidence, but also understanding in what is what is the value of having a rural hospital that's local, more personal, and really is your own community taking care of your own community. All right, before we close, Lauren, we like to do a fun segment with all of our guests. So we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to a rural life? So, JJ, I didn't actually grow up in a rural community. I grew up in a pretty big city of about 150,000 people. And then, of course, we moved to Hillsdale a couple of years ago. And one funny story that I will share about Hillsdale and how wonderful the community is. One day I was at work and my husband called and he said, go home now. 
And so I said, okay. And so I went home and the man that delivers the salt for our water softener was standing on my front porch and he had gotten to the house and the front door was standing wide open. Uh, We had a lock that was not functioning correctly. And he was standing on the front porch calling the dog because he felt he came home. He didn't come home. He doesn't live there. He came to our house to deliver the salt, and um, he saw the front door standing wide open, and he knows we have a dog. So he he didn't see her. So he was standing outside trying to find my dog for me. And the good end to the story was she was upstairs hiding under the bed. But that is something that rural people do. Um, they take care of each other, and that was really nice. And that's a guard dog in rural counties. <laughs> that is a guard dog in rural counties. You're right. Well, thank you again for joining us today, Lauren. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll talk about the challenges in rural hospitals and that we face in recruiting doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other providers to the rural communities. We have a fantastic guest who has a lot of experience in how to fill this gap and solve the problem, so you won't want to miss it. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Lauren Corbin, Chief Nursing Officer for Hillsdale Hospital. For more interviews like this and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com. 